As some of y'all know, and I guess maybe this is partially a confession, but I'm a costume guy. Uh, I, I just think costumes are cool. We used to do Revolutionary War reenacting. We'd dress up like British soldiers. And um, when I was 17, I got my first kilt. I have a full dress kilt. I have a day kilt. Probably a word picture you didn't need right before you had lunch. Um, and, and we just always, but I, we're cleaning out the garage right now. I, I have a uh, shelf of swords in my garage. How many people have a shelf of swords in their garage? You go to my study and you see uh, it is decorated in swords and helmets and tartan, uh, which I had recommended that the rest of the church be decorated in and was shut down by the decorating committee. So he would just have no art uh, in their bones. But uh, anyway, I, I love costumes. I love dressing up. But even, even I have limits, right? And there are some costumes that show up on the Internet, or maybe you've seen a person, that are just, that are just inappropriate. And one of them is one that you often see on New Year's Eve when people are having costume parties to come in the New Year. And, and you will often see it this way. You'll see a couple, and the wife dresses up like an old man, the old year going away, and the husband dresses up like the New Year. So you've got this big, fat, hairy-chested man with a diaper on and a bottle in his hand. And it's just offensive, right? What is it that makes that costume so offensive? Because it's not normal. It's inappropriate because men are not supposed to be babies. That's a lesson the church of Jesus Christ needs. It is our primary purpose in this church to grow you up in the faith. Everything in this service of worship, everything we do during the week is designed for that purpose, for you to develop spiritual maturity. Why? Because that is a scriptural mandate. It is the purpose of the church given to us, even from the Apostle Paul. For instance, Ephesians chapter 4, a reference we go back to all the time when he says that he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints to do the work of service to the building up, to the spiritual building up of the body of Christ. And then he kind of gives us the vision until we all attain to the unity of the faith in the knowledge of the Son of God to what? To a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to what? Grow up. In all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So with all of the efforts that we make in these services of worship, even all the efforts that you have in your time, when we do teach doctrine, when we sing doctrine, when we look at the scriptures, when we preach, when we teach, when we pray, those things will not grow you up in and of themselves. They will not develop Christian character. You have to take them and apply the Christian disciplines for you to grow up in the faith. And too many Christians have been around for years but are still acting like children because they're lacking the spiritual disciplines. The Apostle Paul, in today's brief couple of verses, gives us three measures, three indicators of what God's will is for you and it regards spiritual disciplines that we all need to be pursuing because God himself has commanded us to pursue them. And if we will, we will fulfill what Paul says in Ephesians 4. We will grow up and no longer be children 
So let us go to the Lord in prayer and pray that uh, God will apply these truths to our hearts. Father, in faith, we turn to you, Lord, recognizing our immaturity, uh, recognizing that some of us have been struggling with some of the same sins forever, recognizing that uh, we get so down on ourselves sometimes, or sometimes we're just completely ignorant of our shortcomings. So we come before you right now as prodigal sons, as errant childs, as rebellious teens, and we say, Father, cleanse us. We love you, and we want to be more like you. Would you please take this text of Scripture today and show us what is God's will for us in Christ Jesus in regards to joy, prayer, and thanksgiving. In Christ's name, amen. Please turn again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're just looking at verses 16 through 18 today. Remember, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church, kind of a baby church, a new church uh, that has been uh, persecuted. They've been paying a price for being Christian, but they're holding true. They're holding to the faith. The Apostle Paul is writing, as opposed to the Corinthian church, which we studied prior to this, uh, he's writing to kind of chastise them and tell them to get their act together. He's writing to tell them, you have your act together. But because they didn't have much time with the Apostle Paul, they've had some confusion about the return of Jesus Christ. So he's clarifying some things, but he's also writing this letter to encourage us. And uh, so we praise the Lord for the history of the Thessalonian, uh, Thessalonian church that gives us some of the insights that we're going to learn today here. But I will read the whole text and then we'll just break it down to its component parts here. First Thessalonians five sixteen through 18, uh, which I've titled this sermon, Three Ways in Which We Are to Fill God's Will. God says, the Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's it. Each one of those could be a sermon of itself, but that's really what he's doing here. Again, he's kind of getting to the end of his letter. He's just sort of popping out some imperatives in uh, because he's already gone over who we are in Christ Jesus, the, the indicatives here. And, you know, sometimes I'll be honest with you, when you're doing sermon preparation, lesson preparation, and those of you who are teachers know this, sometimes the outline's a little bit of a challenge. How do you break things down? Especially with Paul. Paul loves just clause after clause after clause and run on and on. This outline was a slam dunk easy one. I mean, it just is not real complicated. Nevertheless, for some of you, I thought it best to write it down. <laughs> but, uh, so you'll find this in your uh, home group's helps here. Three ways in which we can fill God's will. Joy, prayer, and thanksgiving. Not too complicated, right? So first of all, he says rejoice always. Rejoice always. So a couple of things I want to point out here. Joy is commanded and expected. It is commanded. You know, it's kind of like love. Love is an action. Love is a command. We think of it as an affection, right? The Romantic period sort of killed the concept of, of what biblical love used to be, that you have to feel it all the time. And we think of the same thing about joy, don't we? It, it has to be something that comes as a result of our circumstances or the fact that we had a, a, a cappuccino or something like that. It's an emotion. Affection. Does, does it have emotions? Yes. Does love have emotions? Yes. But joy, how do you command an emotion? Well, God does. He does. And we're going to talk about kind of how he does that. So anyway, it's expected, right? And Christianity itself began with joy, right? The angels declaring uh, on Luke chapter 2, And the angels said to them, Do not be afraid, for I behold, this is to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Have you ever studied the various religions? 
Even sometimes, frankly, when you read the Old Testament and you think about how it was practiced during the days of Jesus and Judaism, and, and, and sometimes you come off with these other religions just feeling a burden, don't you? Rules and regulations and customs and ceremonies, and it's just overwhelming burden. Christianity starts off with rejoice, rejoice. Why? Because God accomplished what you cannot. And he saves you based on that grace, not on your achievements or performance or pedigree or the number of ceremonies you attend during the week. That's something to rejoice over, folks. Of course, joy is the second of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. We are to sing for joy. Psalm 81, sing for joy to the God our strength. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. So when we sing, we're to sing joyfully. When we shout, we're supposed to shout joyfully too, but we haven't put a part of that shouting in our service of worship. So we want to kind of probably keep that out. Joy's source. Where does joy come from? So this is, this is really kind of the key because I think we misunderstand this. Romans 5, 2 through 3 says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Okay, he's establishing who we are in Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, the implication there is before becoming a Christian, we were in enmity with God, right? We were, we were in war with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope in the glory of God. So the source is the fact that we're saved, the fact that we're redeemed, that God himself has given us this particular joy. There's a great illustration of this in Luke chapter 10. You remember he sends out the 70 and they come back and they say, wow, what a great time of discipleship. We actually cast out demons. You know, that would be something to brag about, right? And you would think, you would think Jesus would say, we're so, I'm so proud of you for casting out demons, you know? I mean, because, you know, demons kind of need casting out, right? But that's not what he says. He's concerned that they're going to put their hope on performance even in the religion of grace. And we do that sometimes. We do that sometimes. Part of it is because it's human nature. Part of it is we're Americans and performance just drives everything we do, right? But he doesn't say that. He says, I, he says, let me tell you, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Wow. Wow. So it's not like I will... And, Folks, I want you to hear me because there's some of you, especially those of you who are sensitive of spirit. I get that. I'm one of you. It's not that I can't wait one day when I get to experience Christian joy when I get my act together. If you're putting off joy, it's because you're missing Jesus' whole point here. The whole point is rejoice because you're saved. Rejoice because I came into the world. Rejoice because I'm coming back. It doesn't, it is, it, it has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with his performance. Even now, as I'm saying that, some of you are a little hesitant. I'm not so sure. I'm a, you're afraid. You're afraid that you're going to just go, I don't know, join a motorcycle gang or something like that. You know, heaven's angels. You know, we'll have a start a new one, right? That's not what you're going to do. Because what you're going to do is you're going to be so madly in love with Jesus. You are actually going to grow up when you were actually trying to impress Jesus before with your performance. Then we see joy always. So you might be thinking, rejoice always, rejoice. Paul never had a toddler. You know? Paul never had, how would, how would he know, how can he possibly say rejoice always? But he does. 
Now, what does he mean when he says always? Well, he means in all situations, right? All situations. Now, you know, you got to differentiate the, uh, the, the difference again, because our joy tends to be uh, defined by the world, not by what Scripture says. Right. So this is not just the, the giddy happiness, the entertainment, uh, the, the, the my circumstances are great and I feel good and I had a good night's sleep kind of joy of the world. OK, this is a this is a settled decision. Who's he writing to? He is writing to a church that's being persecuted. Maybe even some of them have died because of Jesus Christ. And he tells them, rejoice always, rejoice always. It's possible to both grieve and have joy at the same time. Some of us have done it. Some of us have done it. But it is possible to do this. He's not going to tell you something you, you cannot do. But it does take effort, doesn't it? And let me just tell you, if you don't try to rejoice, even in your trials and tribulations, and we'll expand that some more, too, to help you out. Too. If you don't, what you're going to do is you're going to fall into self-pity. And that self-pity is going to lead to blasphemy. Because you're going to think, oh, woe is me. I wish I had had a different upbringing. I could have handled this. I wish I'd have different help because I could have handled this and everything. Why, God, did you make me this way? God, I'm not so sure you love me after all. It doesn't take long sometimes. It doesn't take long sometimes. But if you end up embracing Christian joy and rejoicing always, you can say, Lord, I have failed again. I am hurt. I am sick. I am broke. But praise God that I am sick and broken and everything under the gaze and under the hand of a God who loves me and who died for me. Romans continues on after the verse I just read. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. Exult in our tribulations? Yes, exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation does what? Brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It, because, see, what happens is you not getting your way is actually the very thing that grows you up so you don't care whether you get your way. But we always want to take the shortcut. We want to kind of deal with that character maturity stuff down the road. So I'm going to go ahead and just indulge in everything right now and everything. And then you're shocked that you fell apart during the trial. No, what you want is you, when you see the trial coming, you recognize there's a purpose behind this. And that purpose is so that that trial is not as big a trial next year. Or next month or 10 years from now. God is growing you up. You don't teach a child by, uh, to walk by carrying them everywhere. And yet that's what we want God to do for us. He wants us just to, to perfect that. Y'all, there's whole denominations or whole churches in America that teach that God is going to grow you up by carrying you everywhere. It just doesn't happen that way. It's unreasonable. So we embrace this principle, even though we have to embrace it in faith sometimes because we don't understand it completely. But this is not this is not an isolated view here from the Apostle Paul. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Here's our endurance again. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Second Corinthians 7, 3. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. You want to hear from Peter? Yes, Pastor Campbell, thank you. You want to hear from Peter? First Peter 4. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Rejoice. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. You know, I guess it's kind of like Band of Brothers. 
when, when, well, you know, sports would work this way too. When you are, when you are in combat together, there is a bond that I think is probably closer than just about any other bond that you could have. Maybe the same thing on a sports team. You really work hard. You, you end up beating the, you know, the bad guy and, you know, all this kind of stuff. You go to the bowl, whatever it might be. But, but when you have been in combat together and you have a reunion 30 years later and that commanding officer walks in, you're just thrilled. You're thrilled. Folks, we are in combat together. And one day, the commanding officer is coming back. And to the extent that we weren't hiding behind the sandbags and that we were in the fray and that we showed courage and devotion and we obeyed orders, to the extent that we look forward to seeing the commanding officer's face again. That's joy then and it's joy now because we cheerfully obey the orders. We move forward instead of retreating and, try and licking our wounds and trying to get out of the very thing that's going to develop our character. And we see, of course, joy is modeled through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, going back to the verse we read earlier in our confession. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Christ earned the right to sit at the right hand of the Father because he endured the cross. He hated it. He despised the shame. He hated the sin. He hated the sneering. He hated the humiliation of being nailed naked in front of everybody. He hated that. And yet he was willing to endure that for you and for the glory that was to come. So that we need to be, we need to have that same attitude. And of course, then, so we think about Jesus, right? Je you know, here's, the, here's another thing that happens to us. When you think about the Trinity, uh, Jesus is the likable one, right? God's the stern kind of maybe, you know, wants to just discipline you all the time, you know, fire and all that kind of stuff, you know, thing. So how about God? Does God ever show joy? You know what absolutely delights God? That you, make, you know what makes God so full of joy that he sings? You. You. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God, Yahweh, is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts or songs of joy. Wow. Wow. God, the Father, does that. Now, when we hear that, doesn't that give us joy? When we hear that, it may give us guilt, <clears throat> but we need to have joy. God exalts over you. He shouts. I just, I, I, I can't picture that. That's probably not a bad idea that we don't want to always picture God. But God is, he's over you. It's like he's holding his hands over you and you're down there and you don't see him. And he is just, he's, he's just, well, I think, I guess he doesn't look up to heaven. <laughs> but uh, he's, he's just looking up and he is just singing and his tears are just coming down. He's so in love with you. He is so in love with you. That gives me joy. That gives me joy. And it doesn't, he's not saying because you got your act together. Because, because your browser history has been clean for the last month. He doesn't say that. He's a, because you're in Christ Jesus. You're one of his adopted children. 
The Christian says, no matter what the world may do to me, God has given his son, Jesus Christ, for salvation. Paul reasoned this way, Romans 8, 32, saying this, that God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So there, it really is possible, but it takes, it's a discipline. It's a discipline of mind. It's a discipline of emotion. It's a discipline, perhaps, of ridding things in your life that, that, that continue to, to, to vex you and bring disjoy, uh, uh, unjoy to you. Now, we're going to end up finding 16 children at the steps of the church on Monday. But you know, there's some things you've got to stay in the game with, <laughs> the fight with. But, but you, you might have to cut out some things. There, there's some things that are joy robbers in your life that you may have to cut out as well. Now, let's go to prayer. They're all connected. He says here, pray without ceasing. The word used for prayer here is the common word for prayer, which means prayers of submission, confession, petition, intercession, praise, and thanksgiving. It's basically coming to God. And you're to do it without ceasing. That means it's constant here. Again, this is a theme throughout Scripture. Romans 12, 10 through 12. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing, there's our word, in hope. Persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. James 5 tells us the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much here. And, you know, the thing about prayer is we sort of think, okay, yeah, well, well we pray, we, I pray, and we, we say, but I don't know if you realize how powerful prayer is. You wouldn't be here today, perhaps, if a certain centurion 2,000 years ago didn't pray to Yahweh. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius said, Four days ago at this hour I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, invite Simon, who is called Peter, to come to you. Cornelius was the first Gentile convert of the new Christian church. And I'm looking at what are probably a bunch of Gentiles right now. Because of his prayer, because of his prayer, God used his prayer to bring about conversion for he and his household. And that started the, Peter thinking, you mean Gentiles can get saved? Wow, that really is something new, you know. The Lord's Prayer is probably a great guide on this. We're actually hoping probably this summer we're going to uh, re uh, restart our Vesper services, our summer Vesper services. And right now we're thinking about the structure of breaking it down, the various eight, nine Sundays that we have, uh, going through the components of the Lord's Prayer. But for our purposes today, you know, you start off with basically with glorifying. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then you come to a hopeful expectation. Your kingdom come, living in the light of his return, right? Recognizing his lordship and you embrace providence. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then you have petitions. Give us this day our daily bread. You're not greedy. I just want today's bread. Please take care of it as you did in the wilderness. Confession. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our others. Uh, uh, give the debts of others. Spiritual assistance, lead us not to temptation, deliver us from evil. And then, of course, it ends with glorifying. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We, we so often start with confession. And that's not a bad thing to do. Start with confession. You kind of want to clear your mind. The problem is, is that we'll go, we just go on this confession thing for 10, 15, 20 minutes. And then you're so depressed <laughs> that you don't want to keep going. I would, I would recommend start off with glory. Embracing his providence. That's how the Lord's Prayer starts off with. Thank you that you are God. And I thank you that you recognize I am just man. I am just woman. 
and I, may, I have done some stupid things, and I want to come before you those, but I thank you that you're God. Don't leave it with just confession. Now, uh, basically, uh, Colossians 4, 2 kind of has this idea of devote again. Devote yourselves to prayer, keep an alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Uh, and this sort of this, uh, the, the, the prayer is to be ongoing it's, uh, and, and that we are to be wholly dependent upon the Father for everything, everything. You know, uh, last week we had the opportunity to send the Van Fossens off to help plant uh, an Anglican church. And the, the Van Fossens, I don't know if you've ever seen them on Sunday morning, but they got four children all under the age of six, I think. Teeny little children, strollers. They live three blocks that way, and they love to walk to church. They like to walk to church. Uh, but he said, he said, crossing Main Street on Sunday morning is like playing Frogger. You know, you just got, what? You know, you got, you're going across and you're coming back and you're going across. You finally make it across and you survive and everything. And, and I was just thinking about what that's like when you have little children or you're in a crowd or you're crossing the street and everything. You, you know, you're not just holding hands like this. You're holding their hands like that. And that's what you're doing. You are holding on to the Father's hand in prayer. And you're doing it all day long. You know your weaknesses. You know your, 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 your tendency to become arrogant or to become uh, self-consumed or whatever it might be. So you're just holding on to God's hand as you're playing Frogger across Main Street. And sometimes there's a big old UPS truck coming and you just hold on to the Father's hand because he's not going to lead you in front of the P UPS truck. He's not going to. What are some inhibitors to, to, to effective prayer? I kind of want to mention this just because sometimes we feel like there's just a lack of fruit in our prayers or I'm struggling with prayers or anything, but, uh, and this is just my list. It probably could be doubled or you might have a different list, but uh, first of all, obviously when sin, right? When you're struggling ser uh, seriously with the Lord and your relationship with him just seems to be sort of dead and you're, you're grumpy and discouraged all the time, whatever. The first thing you know, what is there sin in my life that's sort of this kind of taken over, that's distracting me, this, this kind of anchoring me to the world, uh, the next verse that we're going to look at in a couple of Sundays, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean to quench the Holy Spirit? Well, quench is like to throw water on fire, right? And the Holy Spirit's a fire within you. And if you, with all this worldly living and, and following through on the impulses of the flesh and living by your glands instead of by your brain or whatever it might be, it's like you're throwing water on the Holy Spirit. Well, you know what? The Holy Spirit's God. So you keep doing that. Then you come up to him and say, listen, I'd like to have a raise. What do you think he's going to say? Right? So you're going to have an inhibited relationship with him. And that's what, you know, you're communicating. That's what prayer is. Then there's dishonor. Now, this is, a, and I'm going to go a little bit off on this one. There's this strange verse in Peter, 1 Peter, where he talks about husbands and wives. Now, that's not strange, but, he's, but he kind of gives some instructions here. Let me read to you what 1 Peter 3, 7 says. You husbands... Likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel. That is so offensive. <laughs> uh, since she is a woman and grant, listen to this, grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Right. Both made in the image of God so that your prayers may not be hindered. He gives the reason at least here, the reason to honor your wife so that your prayers won't be hindered. Huh. That's interesting. Of all the things he could have said, why that? Let me, 
let me try to expand this a little bit. You remember when Paul's on the road to Damascus and he's out there killing Christians and he wants to go to Damascus because he was done killing the Christians in Jerusalem wanted to kill some more foreign Christians. And Jesus appears to him. And you remember what Jesus says? Paul, Paul, why are you picking on my people? That's not what he says, is it? Paul, Paul, just as Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, says to the right hand of God, comes up in his resurrection to the apostle Paul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Now, technically, was Paul persecuting Jesus? He can't. Jesus is dead and risen from the dead. He's ruling the universe. Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus. But Paul was persecuting something that was so near and dear to Jesus that he took it personally. You're persecuting the church, my bride. And when you're persecuting the church, my bride, you're persecuting me. Husbands, when you're not living with your wife in an understanding way, when you're not giving her honor as an heir of life, you are persecuting Jesus Christ. He died for her. She's your bride. She's his bride. And I think that's why your prayers are hindered. You can't both worship Jesus and stab him at the same time. And I think it, I, we need a wake-up call with this sometimes. Now, if you think I'm just going after the husbands, it's time for the wives too. What does Ephesians 5 say that a wife should do for a husband? Honor him. Honor him. Men have a built-in honor button, and they know when they're being dishonored. And it comes through nagging. It comes through reminding them of the 15 rules they've broken that particular day. It comes through not sleeping with them. It comes through a million different things. But they can feel every single one of them. So Peter doesn't go after the wives here. But deduction and reason would say it still applies. You wives, if you are not honoring your husband, you are persecuting Jesus Christ. And your prayers will also be hindered. That, again, is my conclusion based on this text. Because I don't think a, there's one standard for men and a different standard for women. So go to school on your relationship. If you are struggling spiritually, you're struggling in your prayer life, you need to ask the question, am I dishonoring my spouse? And repent and start honoring them and treat them the way you would want to be treated yourself and watch your prayer life grow. Now we see here spiritual compromise, of course, Revelation chapter 3. You know that your, de uh, your deeds are neither hot or cold. I wish they were hot or cold uh, because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. If God's going to spit you out of his mouth, he's certainly not going to hear your prayers. Your prayers are going to certainly be hindered. This is basically for fence-riding cowards. Our culture seems to grow men without spines these days, uh, cowardly men. You're to take a stand for Jesus Christ. And when you take a stand for Jesus Christ, it emboldens your prayer life instead of it hindering it. And then, of course, a lack of reverence. First of all, by the way, you've got to be a Christian, too. I mean, I'm sort of assuming that the Thessalonians are Christians, the Corinthians were Christians. You need to be a Christian because you're to pray in Jesus' name. Well, if you don't know who Jesus is and if he is not, you haven't believed in him, you can't really pray in his name. But there's also this whole idea of lack of reverence. Peter goes on in 1 Peter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. 
being of sound judgment, knowing what's going on, being wise, and being sober in spirit, reverent, is going to help enable your prayer life here. So basically, here's our goal. There was two, there was two uh, characters in the Old Testament that said they walked with God, Enoch and Moses. And I think that's what they mean when he says pray without ceasing. You're just walking with God all day long, all day long. Uh, I was in Washington standing on top of the roof of one of my children's house uh, some years ago, and I think it was 5 o'clock, and uh, there was a, 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 a Muslim man walking down. He had a prayer rug with him, and right there in the sidewalk, right at 5 o'clock, he looked at his watch, he rolled out his rug, and he sat there and he prayed towards the east, as they're supposed to do three different times a day. When we hear pray without ceasing, we think, well, how are we possibly going to be doing that? That's not how we do it. That, that Muslim doesn't have a relationship with the God of the universe. If you're a Christian, you do. So you speak to him like you speak to your daddy. You crawl up on his lap, and you just tell him you need him all day long. That's how, that's how you do it. Let's look here, closing out with a Thanksgiving on verse 18. In everything, give thanks here. He doesn't qualify that statement. He says everything, the good and the bad and the ugly. We're to give thanks for here. The trials, the struggles, the, uh, the, the difficulties of life. Again, this is a repeated theme throughout Scripture. This is not an isolated text, Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to thy name, O Most High. Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Uh, and, and again, we are to give thanks to everything. And I love how the Habakkuk closes. One of the minor prophets going through a difficult time there in Israel. And I think this kind of uh, uh, shows an, a great example of what everything means here, how we're to give thanks. Habakkuk says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there are no cattle in the stalls. In other words, famine. Pure famine. Yet, I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice, joy, in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet, and he makes me walk on my high places. You know, what I, when I hear Habakkuk, when I see that, and I think about the difficulties we go through in life, you know, I, I, those of you who've been really tested and tried and prevailed through and have developed the kind of character that we're looking at here, you get to the point where if all I have is God, that's enough. If all I have is God, that's enough. Uh, uh, Y'all have bucket lists? Uh, I used to have a, a bucket list, and um, again, this is sort of maybe a confession, but so, some of the things in my bucket list that I've developed over the years are to sit under the aurora borealis. Not just see them, but just to be under the aurora borealis. Because, you know, I love colors. To fly in a helicopter. My son was a helicopter pilot. The Navy never gave me a ride. In truth, if you got a ride in a Navy helicopter, that probably means times are not very good. <laughs> but uh, to ride in a submarine. You know, I'm kind of like you know, equal time. To live a summer in Scotland. To hike via Camino, Pilgrim Trail, uh, that goes from... Uh, Portugal to uh, Denmark, uh, to visit Scandinavia, to hike the Appalachian Trail, this kind of thing. But there's one thing that actually started my bucket list. I go back to early 1970s. I might have been 10 or 11. My parents went to Greece. And they would come back, and they'd always give us wonderful little souvenirs, of which my older brother has every single one of them. I played mine to death, and they're all pieces and Ended up probably being thrown away. He still has all his. Uh, but they would give us a little and then they would tell us about our trip. And I'll never forget. I don't know why it stuck. But I'll never forget my, 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 my parents saying to me, oh, to see the sunset at Santorini. The most beautiful sunset in the world. And I thought, 
That's the start of my bucket list. I want to see the sunset of Santorini, the Greek Isle of Santorini. That's what I want to do. I want to see that. Now, as you get older, bucket list change. The number one thing in my bucket list now is to keep the bedroom in my basement from leaking. <laughs> this is what happens to your dreams, children. I hate to tell you that, you know. But you know what? I'm okay with that. You know why? I will probably never see the sunset of Santorini. But I know the God who paints it every single day. And I love him. And he loves me. I don't need to see the sunset of Santorini. I've got millions, billions of years of sunsets looking, that I can look forward to. But the creator who makes those sunsets is my friend. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. We'll worship him today. You don't need another bucket list than that, folks. If, you're, if that's your attitude, you can give thanks always and in everything. I want just in concluding, you think about these, how, this is sort of a theme with the Apostle Paul. He ties these together. You see this in Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit know, be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. There are all three of them. Let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Some of y'all know that peace. You've had tragedies in your life, and you know that peace of God that's available, that's supernatural. Some of you have tried to avoid the character growth moment so much that you are a stranger to that peace. You're afraid of it. If you were to live with these three principles, embracing the God of providence that brings everything into your life, these things really are possible. It's not a tall order. They really are possible for you to have all three of these elements. I just want to close with an illustration Rick Phillips points out about B.B. Uh, Warfield. B.B. Warfield, of course, the great Princeton theologian and professional beard model. I took a picture of B.B. Warfield to the mine in Addison's Barber. I said, this, make this. You know, he said, I can fix the hair, but the cheeks, the eyes, and the nose are, you know, forget it. And uh, so he's not my barber anymore. Uh, B.B. Warfield tells a story. He li lived in the 1890s, 1880s. Where the Wild West was going on, the story of the Wild West. There's a man in the Wild West, and he's in this Wild West town, and a shootout starts, just like they have on TV. They start shooting people up and down, and the, 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 the crowd is in chaos. People are fleeing over there. And this man looked across the street, and he saw a man just kind of perfectly relaxed, just sort of watching the shootout. And he thought to himself, there's a man who knows his theology. And after the bad guys were dead, the sheriff came, the posse, whatever, the, the thing started to die down. He walked across the street, and he, and he walked up to him, and he, said, and he asked him the first question of the Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The man answered correctly, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Ah, he said, I knew you were a Shorter Catechism boy by your looks. And then the other one said, why, that is just what I was thinking of you. See, this isn't just Sunday stuff. This is life-changing stuff. And it will make all the difference in the world. And it made the difference in that example. And it will make the difference in our example. So, folks, you can't just be worshiping. You can't just learn doctrine or anything. You've got to develop character. You, how do you develop character? Partly with joy, prayer, and thanksgiving.
Father, I pray that you would apply these truths to us. We are in need of being able to actually believe that we can do these things because we have failed so many times, Lord. But I pray, God, instead of running from your chastising hand, let us embrace it, knowing that it's a hand of love. One side hurts, another side heals. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be mature people, not carried about by winds of doctrines. And let the evidence of that maturity be that we are madly, madly in love with you. And that love grows until the day we see you face to face. Make it so, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.